Hello, friends. Welcome back to Mr. Rewatch. This is your Mr. Robot Recap Podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. And here we are. We're back after a pretty long hiatus. And it's been so tantalizing. I feel like I've been looking forward to season four ever since the end of season three. Sometimes when the wait is really long, people's expectations get high. And so I wondered if for you, you felt like the premiere was kind of worth that long wait. Well, it was definitely um, a mind-blowing premiere, you could say, especially in the first few minutes. I think that it kind of is signaling another shift in tone. And much like season one, two, and three were all so different, I can tell that they're taking it in another different direction for season four. In a weird way, I feel like we're subject to White Rose's time travel machine in this episode because I think we see some of the same sorts of archetypes and themes come back, but in a different way. I guess we should talk about the opening scene. Yeah, I really liked how they integrated the opening scene into the um, recap montage that they had, because it actually took me a second to realize that we were seeing new material because it came right out of the recap. I know, I thought it was pretty elegant the way that they did it. They really pick up right where they left off in that conversation, and you can tell that I mean, nothing has changed for those characters. Price is still trying to force Angela to accept a reality that she is not prepared to accept. Right. And she continues to ask for retribution, which is one thing that she had mentioned um, when we saw her last in this scene. It does really turn the impression that we had of that scene on its head, though. And um, how, how did you react to that when it first happens? It's actually interesting to rewatch the scene because in the middle of it, if you're paying attention there's this really long pause where Angela's just looking into the distance. And so now with the benefit of hindsight, we know that as she's standing and defying Price, she's watching her own assassins approaching. So to me, rewatching it is almost even more powerful to think about this is a choice Angela knowingly makes, knowing exactly how it's going to play out for her. Yeah, I think that I previously related in the character um, Rorsach from um, The Watchmen. And this is going to be a bit of a spoiler for the end of that, but he's somebody who's um, so set in his ways and so um, absolute in his morals that he chooses death because he's unable to lie about um, some events that he saw in that movie. So I was thinking that Angela here, she's really being um, so steadfast in her morals that she's willing to accept these consequences just for um, the, the morality of it, really. It's not really doing her any good. Here's a question I have for you. So when we talked about um, the killing of Joanna Wellick, we talked about the trope of the woman in the refrigerator. Can you refresh me about what that means? Oh, so it, it's a reference to, I think, um, a blog or something which was called Women in Refrigerators. And it refers to um, a trope that you see on television and in films where a character, um, most often a female one who has uh, a love interest with the main character, is killed just to move the plot along. They, their character is kind of sacrificed for the benefit of some other character that the writers deem is more important. Um, I did get a bit of that impression from Angela because we can see that it has such a huge impact on all of the other characters and that it is going to be a really important part of this season. But I also felt that Angela was more of a developed and autonomous character and that it wasn't really just the only purpose of, of her to propel other characters along. I think I felt that too. And if you read, um, there are some interviews with Portia Doubleday now released. She talks about how she and Sam Esmail kind of talked about this being 
really the only logical end for Angela. And I, I guess if I try to imagine what alternative course of action she could have had in this season, I'm not sure I see one. Whereas with Joanna Wellick, I felt a bit startled by it. Uh, and I felt there was more development that could have happened. But you've got a good point that the Angela character has had a pretty fulsome evolution and a storyline of her own. Yeah, and I think that the only alternative to killing her so early in the season would have been for her to survive until the end, because this was really um, the end of the current story arc that she had going on. It was a nice time to cut that character to an end, um, sort of like the opposite of Joanna, because she was in the middle of that storyline with um, Derek and um, Retribution against um, Scott Knowles. So Angela's, her storyline at least had concluded, and it sort of means that either they could integrate her into a different storyline, but they only have a season to do that left. So it didn't really seem like they could fit that in. I do want to say Philip Price for sure gets bad dad of the year. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. To be honest, I started to second guess if he was lying about um, being her father. And I think that they had one line in there where he does confirm it's a white rose right before they hang up Mm -hmm. and i think that's just because aside from that people might have thought that he was lying to manipulate her i wondered too i thought what is his continued purpose in the story because he doesn't do anything to intervene in the situation he knows what's going to happen too and he turns around and walks away so i thought there must be something big in the works for price where they don't take him out for being useless his job is to handle angela and he's been unable to do it So I kind of wonder what's going to happen for him now. He does seem to be taking on a really big role in this season. And I thought that it was interesting to compare his character now to how we saw him in season one, where um, he was vaguely associated with White Rose, um, as we saw in the post-credit scene of the first season finale. But so far, him and the Dark Army had not really been connected. And he had been seen as somebody who was just a rich and powerful businessman. But we can see him getting entwined in all of his criminal behavior now. And I'm curious to see how deep that goes. Remember when White Rose said that she wanted to slap his hand? I mean, I, I think she's she's done that now. Yeah, no kidding. I guess it goes to show you that um, White Rose really means business this season. I think what I love, so the first scene where we see White Rose, we see B.D. Wong in that fabulous dress. <laughs> I like the new undercut, too. I think B.D. Wong and I have the same haircut right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, actually. Yeah, I'm going to get that dress <laughs> and he's going to wear it better, but that's all right. Um, I love how evil White Rose is off the top. Like they're really embracing that villainy. And I think that's just going to give us so much drama to play with as we move through the episodes. Yeah, just before we get into that, I wanted to mention a bit of an Easter egg, which also comes up later in this episode. When Price goes back into his house or whatever and he starts... um smashing things and talking to white rose on the phone the ceiling tiles in that room are white roses so i think that the symbolism there is going to show you that um white rose is really taking control of price's situation and she's sort of on top of him both in the physical and metaphorical sense that's a really good catch was there a past intimation that they had been lovers or am i making that up price and white rose i don't remember that (laughs) i am making that up all right Maybe that'll be the twist this season. That'll be a new fanfic uh, <laughs> ship that people can get behind. But, Price Rose, uh, I love it. <laughs> Price Rose. <laughs> um, so we get to see uh, in in the first scene with the White Rose, we have the new Grant Wang Shu. Did you notice that this scene sort of mirrored the um, first scene that we saw White Rose in in the last season premiere? 
where Grant was talking to White Rose about how Elliot was a disappointment. You couldn't be trusted. Absolutely. And Grant is like urging her to take more action and be tougher and get rid of him. And Wang Shu does the very same thing. Um, And it's interesting because I thought, lady, you just got this job. You're being awfully aggressive. And so the best that Wang Shu gets is permission to send Elliot a reminder of what's at stake. And that's going to come right at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, I did think that that was an interesting comparison just because Grant, um, he kind of overextended himself there and that ultimately led to his death. So it was interesting to see how White Rose is now a little more accepting of uh, feedback like that. I think the White Rose character contributes so much to conversations about gender and power. And so White Rose's assistants historically have been men. So Grant and then Irving before Grant. So I'm curious about what the uh, relationship between the two of them will be like with a woman assistant. Yeah, and I get the impression that we're going to see this character a lot more. We cut away from that scene uh, to see that it's Christmas in New York City and everything looks pretty normal. So we're not seeing the garbage fires um or any of this sort of you know strangeness or like uh, black market kind of activity that we saw in previous seasons on the street yeah this is the first christmas since five nine has been reversed and it seems like everything has just went back to normal right away although um normal at this christmas party is still pretty unsavory <laughs> so my note says we cut to a christmas party for some 80s lawyers <laughs> um I read online as well that in this scene, um, they're playing Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, and the guy's name is Freddie. So it's referencing um, Bohemian Rhapsody, which we have an episode reviewing. Uh, Rami Malek was in that uh, movie, and I think he won an Oscar for it between these two seasons. He did. And so this is, we were talking um, before recording a bit about how this episode integrates some important themes from previous season openers and one of those i think is elliot's zeal for pursuing child predators and so freddie lomax he's i guess king 80s lawyer um he's played by jake Busey, and we see him right away um interacting with an underage online sex worker i just wanted to mention that jake Busey is the greatest typecasted asshole i think on screen (laughs) he was really good at it here he is excellent at it. He's I can't imagine better casting or a better hair color job for this character. <laughs> he plays a massive asshole in Stranger Things too, the newest season of that. And he was in Starship Troopers as an asshole. Being typecast as an asshole must suck. That reminds me, I was reading about Judd Nelson earlier, and basically he just is an asshole, so it's pretty easy for him. Is he? That's too bad. Yeah, he was really mean on the set of The Breakfast Club because he stayed in character and was abusive to all the women. Wow, Judd Nelson, you're cut. (laughs) So the scene reminds me a lot of the infamous Ron's Coffee scene because it has a physical confrontation between Elliot and the person that he's hacking. Um, in that context, he was using an exploit on Tor, whereas in this situation, what he's done is sent a package with a phone that he's going to use to keep track of and communicate with Freddy. And he's also sent him a phishing link that he demands that he access. So this attack is much more based on social engineering and um, a, a direct confrontation between Elliot and his victim. And we can see that, that really raises the stakes and puts him in a lot more danger. I love how much this scene reminds me of kind of classic first season Mr. Robot intensity. Like there are all the awkward pieces of the hack that have to come together. Everything has to be executed in sequence and perfectly. And it's just so wonderful to watch them in pursuit of this guy and then how they close it up. I love this. 
I also enjoy how you kind of have a, a gradual reveal of what the purpose is of this hack. It actually isn't stated explicitly what the goal is until we start to see um, Minister Zhang's name come up in these files. So that's the reveal to us that this is all about White Rose, and this is just a way to achieve that end. Well, because I would say that Freddie Lomax, the lawyer, even he doesn't know what it's about till the very end because he thinks he's being extorted for money because of um, soliciting the services of a sex worker. He's afraid Elliot's going to send the video to his wife and kids. He doesn't know that he's being pursued by the Dark Army in the subway station. He doesn't know that Ji Zheng is you know, basically a criminal mastermind. You know, he doesn't know any of these things. Um, and then he gets really, really frightened when Elliot lets him know that. Well, he seems to be quite familiar with the Dark Army and their actions lately. Um, one other thing I wanted to point out before we get too far from it is that there is a, a direct reference to the Ron's Coffee scene where Elliot says that he doesn't give a shit about money. Although at that point, it's also um, Mr. Robot behaving. So we can see that there's a lot more cohesion and um, cooperation between Elliot and Mr. Robot in this season, as opposed to in the Ron's Coffee scene when they hadn't built a relationship yet. But um, it was just like a very direct reference to dialogue that happened in the season premiere. The integration of the two characters is really neat, but... One feature of that integration, I think, is that Elliot is no longer breaking the fourth wall and talking to us as his friend. It took me a while to realize that, actually, because it's like the absence of something that was previously in other seasons. It took um, a moment in one particular scene that came up later, and we'll, we'll get to that later, for me to realize that he wasn't really interacting with the audience anymore. I have a little Easter egg from the subway station. What's that? So the busker with the Santa hat? Yeah. It's Matt Quayle. Oh, really? That's awesome. There, there <laughs> yeah. are a lot of cameos in this episode, apparently. There are. There are three that I caught, and you might have caught even more than that, but that's the first one. Um, and also, in the train station, we get a cut um, to a newscast, and newscasts are used really effectively in Mr. Robot to give us kind of background information. So I think we're about 15 minutes in before we officially know 5-9 has been reversed, and they credit that to the resilience of E-Corp and Tyrell Wellick. And so apparently all these new jobs have been created. People are in an unprecedented time of prosperity and also concentrated corporate power. Yeah, I guess it's been really good for E-Corp and Tyrell, actually. And you can say that they're even at a better position than they were before the 5-9 hack, which must be really distressing for Elliot, who sacrificed so much to make that attack happen. Um we do notice that Freddy is being followed by the Dark Army, as we mentioned earlier, and they locate him by using a Bluetooth-enabled um, identity card. So I thought that this is pretty cool because it reflects something that happens in the real world where um, companies will use Bluetooth beacons, which they can put in um, a retail environment or something like that, and they can use it to track which phones and therefore which people are going into the store and track how long they stay there, how frequently they come, and other things like that. So Bluetooth is a really pervasive method of tracking right now, and it was cool to see that acknowledged. Does my office know where my security pass is at all times? Well, I'm not trying to say I hacked you or anything, but I'm pretty sure your office card is um, HID, which is, um, it's not Bluetooth. It, it is sort of trackable, but not to the distance that Bluetooth is. That's something where you would need to actually get like physical contact with it. That's so interesting. Um, and so I thought that was neat. It's neat to see like a new hack in the show because we've got a couple of old favorites, right? We've got a dead man switch where Elliot, when Freddie builds a gun on him on the train, he's saying, go ahead and shoot me. This video will automatically be sent to your family and the FBI. Um, you know, we had the burner phone, we had all that good stuff, but I liked the ID card hack as well. 
I think that the dead man switch is something that comes up really often, both in the sense that um, Elliot will use it sort of as a tripwire to ensure that some action isn't taken against him. He can kind of have um, an insurance file, kind of like WikiLeaks infamously used, and then use that as leverage to prevent any harm happening to him. But um, there's another character who uses a different kind of dead man switch later on when they're getting threatened by Dom. They mention that even if something happens to them, there are other people who can um, accomplish what she was setting out to accomplish. So I think that that's a theme that the show uses really often, which is that sometimes the person who you're confronting isn't really the sole danger that you're facing. And even if you're able to solve that problem, you're still going to be hurt in some other way. And that means that you're really paralyzed and it limits the options that you're able to take. Well, and of course, um, you know, maybe the best example of it was Trenton used a dead man switch to let Elliot know that 5-9 could be reversed. Yeah, and that really set the stage for this entire season. So that one was very impactful. When um, Elliot really wants to get into this guy's email, and so when he starts picking through it, um, Silver Shamrock comes up a lot. So I think that might be the new Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue. <laughs> Maybe they'll open a restaurant called that or something. I knew it must have been a reference to something, but I wasn't sure what just yet. I think it's just a shell corporation that holds Dark Army money. Like, that's the read I got from it. Okay. Um, the money is being funneled to the Cyprus National Bank. Uh, some clever Redditors have been poking around. There is a website for Cyprus National Bank, and I guess it has some fake news stories from 2015, and listeners can check that out if you're interested in, uh, in that site. Cyprus is actually uh, a hotbed for laundering money. It's one of the easiest places to establish a corporation and make cash deposits of American U.S. dollars. What? No kidding. It's also a common place for um, VPNs and proxy servers to be hosted because it's almost um, extra jurisdictional, if that's that word and that's how it's pronounced. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of a way where you can use the internet and not have it be tracked by one of these so-called 14 eyes governments, which includes like the USA, the UK, New Zealand, and a bunch of others, um, because Cyprus doesn't have uh, uh, intelligence agreement with those countries. Um, Lomax is, you can see the hamster wheel running in his head at this point. He's trying to, he's basically trying to get out of there. Um, he gives Elliot a name of a contact, uh, John Garson in the city that he should follow up with. And I've got more to say about John Garson uh, later in the episode. Yeah, there'll be a lot more. Um, but when Elliot asks him for the address of this person, there's a bit of a complication in his plan. Right. And so they're still communicating by cell phone. They've split up. They've fled the train because the Dark Army, as we talked about before, is tracking the swipe card. Um, while they're talking on the phone, Lomax realizes that Elliot is not somebody with the power to protect him from Dark Army or anybody else. And so at that point, he um, he pulls out the gun uh, that he used to threaten Elliot with earlier. And uh, he actually ends his own life in the middle of a street uh, rather than be caught by either Dark Army or law enforcement. That was certainly another one of those Chekhov's gun moments. Huh? We should have like a bell or something to ring when that happens in the series. <laughs> We should like a like an air horn, like a like every gun is Chekhov's gun in this series, really. Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the first times that Elliot has sort of pushed somebody so far that they've um, decided to end their life instead of agree with his hack. And it goes to show you that the Dark Army is really they're even more dangerous this season. And everybody is sort of starting to realize that um, they have eyes and ears everywhere. They really have control over everybody. So now let's go over to E Corp where this is the first scene that takes place here this season. Tyrell 
it looks like he's back to normal, right? He's in his suit. He's being briefed by his assistant, Elizabeth. And he just, he's asking if appointments can be deferred. He's got totally flat affect. And it made me think of this quote, and I'm going to forget who said it, but somebody smarter than me said there are two great tragedies in life, and one is not getting what you want, and the second one is getting it. Wow. That's well put, especially when we think about um, how Tyrell has been trying to be the CTO for practically the entire series. That's really been one of the main motivating factors of his character. And now that he's achieved it, he realizes that it's really not what he was led to believe. Although um, I can imagine when he's getting paid, like I'd be pretty happy just to see whatever if I was getting that much money. Well, it's amazing because he's, I mean, to achieve that success, he's lost everything else. So his family, he's, you know, had to ally himself with the dark army, with F society, with, you know, everyone, I don't think he would have considered a legitimate partner. You know, he's had to compromise himself every which way to get to where he is. And now that he's there, it's not that satisfying to him. So he's just, he's in a bad place, I think, at the beginning of this season. Yeah, well, so is everybody, because right after that scene, we see Dom once again. She's in a, a new situation. So Dom, um, we first see the camera kind of cuts through her window, and we see that Dom's been drinking a bit, and she looks quite a bit worse for wear. Yeah, because last time we saw her, she had just been um, forcibly recruited into the ranks of the Dark Army. So that explains why she has this new setting. It also is... Um, why she's really taking a turn for the worst. Um, one thing that a more uh, observational viewer noticed was that the wine she's drinking is from 2017, when this takes place a year before that. So I personally think that's just like a small uh, like mix-up on the set, but people are definitely trying to take that into a time travel direction already, or oppose it that Dom is in a different timeline than the others right now. Dom probably wishes she was in a different timeline than the others. Like at first I, I realized it's not her apartment right away, but it takes us a little bit to realize that she's now back living with her mom. So again, this kind of calls back to like the season two story where Elliot winds up back at his mom's place. As far as we know at the beginning, um, someone on Twitter posted that Dom looks like she really needs a shower. <laughs> yeah. Like she's obviously not been taking care of herself and she's really paranoid. So she sees a vehicle outside. She's writing down the license plate and like identifying characteristics. Um, and she hears a noise in the house. So remember at this point, we don't know where she is, uh, who, who lives there. And she winds up pulling her, I guess it's probably her service. Yeah, it, hand it is because it's a Glock or whatever. And that's what they all get, I believe. I'm not actually an expert uh, on that. So I shouldn't have said that, but what did you think of, about her keeping it under the cushion of her chair? I saw that and I was just thinking that would be like the worst whippy cushion ever. Well, I was thinking that just shows me how far she's fallen. Like, think about how conscientious Dom is. Think about, you know, even when she's drunk and has Darlene at her house and like they're hooking up, she still puts it appropriately in its safe and I think even removes the magazine. Like, I, she's so careful all of the time and now like she's just leaving her glock hanging out on the couch yeah like that doesn't seem like she's her regular self like even um alexander jones or whatever could lock his gun up yeah exactly even that guy <laughs> uh and he probably doesn't pull it on random contractors who are there to fix their mom's bathrooms 
I, I was faked out because I actually thought this was a Mandy Patinkin cameo at first, but this is somebody who looks slightly like him. I truly wish it were a Mandy Patinkin cameo. So I was saying earlier that there are a few visual references to White Rose. When she pulls the gun on this um, repair person, there is a painting of a White Rose that's standing between her and him. How am I not catching any of these white roses that you've seen? <laughs> I'm going to pay more attention. I just go on Reddit after it's over and see the things that other people notice because I'm not that observational. Dom's mom is named Trudy, which I think is the only name she could have. And I can't decide if I love her or hate her. She seems kind of like overbearingly sweet to me. Like she is a lot, but you can't really blame her. <laughs> I think it's genuine, though. I don't think it's like manipulative or passive aggressive mom nice. Like I think it's real. Yeah, well, I think that they need to make her be a very um, easy character to empathize with because we realize that she's more embroiled in the the dangerous situation that Dom is in later on. And that has to mean something because if she was just some hateful, abusive mom like Elliot's, then we would all be rooting for her to die at that point. That's exactly true. And so Trudy says she's going out mall walking, perfect, uh, with Janice. And we're going to learn a lot more about Janice later. So now we go to the empty all-safe office where Elliot and Mr. Robot are discussing John Garson and other um, ways to hack into White Rose. I thought that it was cool that they were using the abandoned all-safe office because it reminded me of when they were staying in Shayla's abandoned apartments in that episode. And they're kind of like um, reusing different locations that have become defunct or unoccupied and then taking on a new purpose for them. I did wish I could have zoomed in on the, I don't know what you call that, but that sort of web of ideas that he has up on the wall? Mind map. <laughs> Mind map. I wish I could have zoomed in to see what some of those cards were. I bet that there probably are a bunch of like funny jokes that they stick in it. If it were me, they would be. <laughs> like they would just be like, or like things I ate for breakfast that were good. I think another way that they show that the world around Elliot has changed so much is that we see Elliot in a very drab orange lighting when previously it had been like bright blues and whites that we had seen in this situation. So um, although it is the same physical building, it's, it's really different looking than it has been before. That's true. And here we see Mr. Robot cautioning against making this personal and cautioning against focusing too much on feelings and about Angela, where Elliot is saying he's basically totally wiped out. And what he wants to do is rob Cypress National Bank and finally destroy White Rose by basically deleting the money. Yeah, and I, I'm kind of skeptical about this plan, considering how quickly they seem to have whipped it up. Another thing is that we all know that every season of Mr. Robot has at least one really big twist that comes near the end of the season. So although I had missed the things like Elliot being in prison, I'm really trying to pay close attention to what the twist could be this time. And I wonder if um, sort of like in season three with the stage three attack that ended up turning into a massive cyber bombing, maybe this Cyprus National Bank isn't really what we've been led to believe so far. And maybe it will actually be more important or less important as the series goes on. Speaking of Elliot and prisons, you know who's not in this episode that I really expected to be in this episode? Leon? Vera? <laughs> Vera. Oh, yeah. I wished to see Leon. But I thought when we leave off at the end of season three, it seems like we're going to pick right back up with the Vera storyline, but Vera's nowhere to be found. Yeah, and he was with um, Darlene last time we had seen him. And the next time we see Darlene, she seems to have, um, similar to Dom, kind of went off the deep end. I wonder if he had any part in that. I wondered that too, because I wondered about the end of that interaction. And so Darlene shows up and she's really frantic. Uh, she has not accepted Angela's death. 
And even though, so Elliot was sent a photo, apparently if you, you can capture it in the episode, if you've got uh, quicker hands than me, uh, he sent a photo of Angela's body and that he's never showed to Darlene. And so she's, she doesn't believe that Angela has died. And she in fact thinks that she saw her on the street. The Darlene scene is really um, emblematic of some new cinema cinematography that they've been employing this season. They have the shots on her kind of take a perspective of looking down on her from a camera that's held up higher. And it makes her look more disoriented. And that's kind of the effect that they're going for when they're showing that um, she is really intoxicated. Another thing that wasn't so much in this scene, but that I noticed in other ones was that um, they're doing a lot more slow zooming, which I hadn't really done in previous seasons. But I think that that's some influence that they took from making Homecoming, because that was something that they did very often in that. Oh, good catch. Um, side note, the landlord still has Flipper. Flipper is still hanging out out there. I didn't believe that at all, to be honest. It sounded like he was making up an excuse. Well, I'm sure he is because Darlene is quite distressed and it's also clear that she's using some substances. And it actually kind of made me wonder, because nobody seems shocked at that, if maybe that's an issue that she's experienced before. Because remember, we have this kind of gap in Darlene's story where she had left town and gone away. Yeah, I do get the impression that this is something that she's done before. And I, I think just at the base of it, it's just very, very sad. This episode is overall very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, Elliot does try to tell her, although it's not in the most reassuring tone, that they shouldn't feel guilty and that it wasn't their fault. He seems to be a lot less empathetic than he had been in previous seasons. And I kind of um, get the impression, and I, I said get the impression, but they really outright tell it to you later on. But it seems like Elliot is compartmentalizing the trauma that he's experienced. And um, that's why he's being so callous about it. I think you're right. And I think when he says he's exhausted, it's really that emotional well has run dry for him. And the way that he's coping with it is just by shutting down in certain ways. Did you like the shot of when um, Elliot switched into Mr. Robot when he was talking to Darlene? I do. It's almost like a relay race where they like hand off the role of like taking care of her. I thought it was really cool. I really liked how they've handled the transitions between Elliot and Robot, and I think that they're going to do that even more this season. Um, because also when they were first meeting Freddy in the train, I, I really liked how they handled that there too. And um, while we're still talking about the scene, and before we move on, the idea of having a photo um, or a still frame be injected into the video just for that one frame is something that was featured within the plot of Fight Club. And knowing that Fight Club um, has been a big influence for the show already, I think that that's kind of where they pulled that from. That's a great reference. Um, this, I believe, is the scene where we see that Mr. Robot is speaking directly to us, the invisible friend, right? Yeah, it is. It, it felt like um, uh, in House of Cards. Oh, it does. It does. Actually, that's it's very reminiscent of that, isn't it? Yeah, because it's not just that he's talking to the audience, but he's doing it in a very deliberate fourth wall breaking way. Now, here's the second cameo I caught, and I won't say I caught it. Actually, I'll say the internet caught it and I read about it. Um, but Sam Esmail's wife, Emmy Rossum, is one of the carolers that they pass on their way to John Garson's apartment. I wondered who that was because they put a lot of um, like camera time on them, but I couldn't even recognize yeah. them, to be honest. I didn't either, but thank you, internet. Thank you, internet. Mr. Robot is reluctant to go into the building because it's owned by E Corp. And Elliot basically says they own half of Manhattan, like we're going in here anyway, where a security guard is eating a bowl of fruity pebbles. And that's actually a pretty cool shot. 
I thought that was really um, Tarantino-esque because they always have really close-up shots of food um, in his movies. Uh, maybe I'm I'm like grasping for straw with all of these references that I think that he's making. But again, it reminded me of that. We get a scene here where there's, um, it's not subtitled. There's a man speaking a language I can't identify and I don't know what he's saying. And so this is kind of like in the one shot episode where we have the people speaking German in the elevator. Um, but if anyone knows what the guy who looks, do you think he looks like Ai Weiwei or am I making that up? I don't know who that is. So let's go with yes. I may be wrong, <laughs> but uh, if anyone knows what the man speaking loudly on his cell phone uh, is saying, we would love to know. I don't know what he's saying either, but I, I've heard that he's speaking Samoan. Uh, John Garson lives in 7C. Elliot wants to own his Wi-Fi and you can hear ticking. And I always think of that, you know, kind of rhythmic ticking and clock sounds as sort of uh, is harbinger the word? A harbinger that yeah. sort of white rose or some white rose related activities about to happen. Especially because when we had that introduction to white rose this season, um, we heard their watch beep again, which is something that is really associated with that character, but had sort of dropped off for a bit. So I think that they're returning to the fundamentals of White Rose and um, invoking clocks and time symbolism. When they walk into the apartment, there's this really cool scene of dramatic irony. So they go in, and if you look closely, you can see that one of the picture frames still has, you know, the insert with the picture of like a fake family that's in it when you buy it? I would like to make an art gallery that just has those in them as some kind of like meta uh, speech. I'd go to that. <laughs> But yeah, it goes to show you that this isn't actually somebody's uh, resonance. Everything in here is fake. And so they kind of know something's wrong. And when they really realize it, um, Elliot picks up the play No Exit by Sartre. Um, and one of the characters in that is named Garson. And if you will indulge me for a minute or so, um, No Exit is a play about three people who are stuck in hell together. And the whole time they're looking for who the torturer is or who's coming to torture them. And that's where the famous line comes from that hell is other people. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And so the three people in the room, Garson is like an anti-war journalist. He's a pacifist um, who's shot when he's fleeing arrest. Um, he's in hell because he was bad to his wife, though, not because of that. Um, there's a queer woman and there's another woman. And part of hell is other people is that there are no mirrors and so the only way they can understand themselves is in how they're reflected by the other people, how the other people tell them that they are. And so that's their torture. They're each other's torturers. And so this may be like Lolita, where we never really get direct satisfaction with the parallel, but I thought it was worth rereading that play and sharing that. Just that you mentioned that there are three people who are trapped in hell, it sort of reminded me of... Um... Some references that the show has made to the Holy Trinity, which is Elliot, um, Mr. Alderson, and the audience who he talks to. So maybe I wonder if that's a, a sort of reference to those three characters. I was trying to think of who it might be, because, I mean, at least in the play, it's two women and a man. Um, so it was just interesting to think about. So with every second that passes, I think we get more and more dread because we obviously know something is not right. We know they've been duped. We don't know if Garson was a signal for help. Uh, we don't know if it's just a cue to Dark Army, but Freddy has set them up. And here come the hired goons. <laughs> hired goons. Um, 
do you notice in these these series of shots that Mr. Robot and Elliot are doing things in different rooms at the same time? I know that that's like not really a plot hole because it's something that they've like came in and done quite abashedly a few times. Um, sorry, unabashedly. But um, I always think it's funny when they have two characters who are supposedly the same person who are doing different things. I thought that happened in the train station too. Like I thought it was implausible that Elliot could have been on the train so quickly. So I, I don't know if that's a purposeful choice at this point in the series. I tend to think with this show that it is, but I did notice it in kind of an awkward way. I think it is a purposeful choice, and I think it does play into the time thing. That could make sense, because like, um, maybe they're jumping around like that. I, I feel like they always just hands wave it away by saying that it's an unreliable narrator. But we can see that once those hired goons come and pull out Elliot, it is obviously just Elliot and there's nobody else in there. Right. And we see that through the surveillance cameras where the security guard is kind of finishing up their cereal and just watching it happen. And then we cut away to Dom's house where they're having a satisfying dinner of macaroni and and gravy. Is that a thing? Maybe that's like a southern thing. They put gravy on everything. It is. It's in New Jersey. Is macaroni and gravy a New Jersey thing? Like, everything is legal in New Jersey. That seems like something Dave would know. I have no idea. I've never even heard of macaroni and gravy. I'd try it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you could put some cheese uh, curds in there and make, like, your pasta poutine. <laughs> you know what I was thinking? You know how sometimes in, like, Indian food, like, curry, or sorry, sauce and gravy are used interchangeably as words? Doesn't gravy mean sauce? Maybe it does. Maybe I'm making too much of it. Maybe it's just macaroni and sauce. And isn't a hot dog a sandwich? Yes. <laughs> Yes, it is. Uh, Dom's mom is uh, not debating gravy or sandwiches. Uh, she is trying to set Dom up with Janice, a nice taxidermist she met at church. You know, I was so curious about that that I just pulled up Google and looked at gravy and macaroni. And apparently it's just what some people call like spaghetti and meatballs. So I think you're right about the fact that gravy is just sauce. It's a Utica expression. <laughs> yeah, straight out of me. The dinner is sort of awkward, cute, where you think the mom is obviously, I think, just trying to cheer Dom up a little bit. And Janice is so awkward. Um, and so, you know, she kind of pressures Dom to walk her to her car where Janice, uh, she's played by Ashley Atkinson. She is delightful. Like, I, I initially thought I would have preferred character actor Margot Martindale to play this part. Um, but I don't think it would have been age appropriate in terms of kind of the romantic idea. Um, but she's really delightful. And she has, is it like a tiger head in her car? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Something like that. I went to one day on a date with a taxidermist. And when I went back to their apartment, they like showed me all of them. And that was very strange. Did you go on a second date with that taxidermist? <laughs> no, but you know, who's to say why that was? <laughs> <laughs> I like the kind of smooth revelation of what Janice is really there to do. Yeah, and um, the way that it hits you, it's very impactful and frightening because she's really able to um, talk about some horrific things, but in a way that is so detached and um, still preserves like that cheery affect that she has in all the other scenes. I agree that um, I think it's a really good actor. And um, from what I've heard, they're supposed to take on a really big role this season. Maybe they're like um, an Irving level of character and how often they'll appear. At least I hope that's the case. I hope so, too. Like, there's a moment for me where because it, she seems to me like sort of a sweet dum-dum, like she's trying to compare the stress of taxidermy with working for the FBI. 
And I just think, oh, come on, lady. And then she just so smoothly torques it so that Dom is completely in the vice. She knows exactly that she's a dark army agent. She's there to enforce it. She's there to threaten her mom. It's so sinister. It's beautiful. It's a really good scene between those two actors. Yeah. And we already know that Dom is really um, deep into her depression and her paranoia. And she gets the impression that these vans that she sees on the streets are also Dark Army affiliated. So for her, that affirms the paranoia that she had going on already. Let's look back at Darlene. At first, I thought it was squatters, but I think she's hosting a party at Angela's apartment. Yeah, and she's using a lot of drugs at it. There's fish food, but no fish. So no look. No locate on Flipper, no locate on QWERTY this season. Why do they have the ball? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of a funny scene. Like, it would be like a regular party. Like, there's some flat earther arguing. Um, these two women are kind of critiquing Angela's closet. And when they, I guess they touch her ballet shoes. And if we remember, ballet was a connection that Darlene and Angela had because they would go to classes together. Um, Darlene kind of loses her shit and throws everybody out of the apartment. I love her dialogue in it. I'm not going to try and repeat what she said because it will sound cringy when I do it, but it was hilarious to hear. Do we think she's living in Angela's apartment? Good question, because wasn't she last staying in Shayla's abandoned apartment? She might not have anywhere else to go. Well, and she's never really had a fixed address, right? So she was either at Shayla's or at the FBI safe house. Like, I don't think she had anywhere to call home. And so it seems like maybe she's living at Angela's, which is untouched. So all of that sketchy black paint and all the weird the photographs and things Angela had posted, it's all untouched. Makes me wonder who's paying the rent there and if her dad knows. But I guess um, one thing that they mentioned is that so far Angela is only uh, missing. The Dark Army um, was able to hide her body, so nobody really has any closure about what has happened to her. Now let's go. I think this is the last scene in the episode, and there's a big cameo here. Oh, I think I know which one you're talking about. Although, to be honest, I did not recognize that at the time. I didn't recognize it either. I wouldn't have known Sam Esmail's face, but now I will never forget it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a real way to burn it into your minds. He's cooking drugs um, in uh, an apartment I don't recognize. I thought that they had taken them back to Elliot's apartment, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Oh, maybe it is. No, to be honest, earlier in the episode, they're at Elliot's apartment, but it's daylight, and I didn't recognize it either just because it was bright. <laughs> Elliot is pretty sure, so he's struggling with the hired goons. He's pretty sure White Rose is listening. He threatens to make the shipping hack public and ruin it. He tells them he knows about the Cypress National Bank. Yeah, and much like in the previous, um, the scene that happened in the barn, Elliot is in a lot of danger here, and he's trying to use the information that he has as leverage to survive. Another way to compare and contrast those scenes, though, is that in this case, Elliot is really just motivated by rage and by um, getting retribution for Angela. Whereas in the past, he's had the more overarching goal of um, changing the world as far as his um, anti-capitalist, anti-corporate views go. Now he's really just in it for the, the spitefulness. This is also, I remember there was a Sam Esmail tweet that had everybody kind of up in arms where he said the line goodbye friend has already been written. And this is when he actually is the speaker of that line. So as he injects him with what looks like a lethal dose of drugs, uh, he says goodbye friend. 
he was saying that even though it's just um, two words that he had for this cameo, it took them like 30 takes. And then it was actually Rami Malek who was giving him the best advice about how to deliver the line. But um, it's really just so perfect that for the last season, we have Sam Esmail himself um, being the one to tell us goodbye, friends. I really expected it to turn up um, toward the end of the season instead of toward the end of the season premiere. But um, the way that it was delivered really gave me the impression that we are toward the end of the series and that it really is going to end sometime soon. Elliot has... Elliot sees his life really flash before his eyes. So we see images of... Mr. Robot, F Society, Shayla, Krista, Angela. Actually, I got ahead of myself because I think there's a hallucination he has as well of his family and he's a child, but Darlene isn't there. Wow, you're right. You know, I never thought about that. That's a pretty glaring omission, isn't it? I wonder if she's in any of his flashback scenes. It's the same hallucination he had when he was on Times Square and he saw like his mom, his dad, and himself. Oh, good point. Yeah. Of course. Now, we just cut to the credits. So the way that we're left is to wonder if Elliot has survived the overdose he's just been given. And I mean, it being Elliot, it seemed pretty obvious to me that he was going to survive. I only think that he died in the first episode of the last season. Um, But the way they present it is very convincing, especially because um, the way I was watching this, I didn't um, know that there was a post-credits scene or like a a mid-credits scene. So I, I closed it once the, um, the first set of credits started coming up, and I didn't realize there was another scene until I looked at uh, the internet afterward. In the bonus scene, someone walks in and gives Elliot a dose of naloxone, an antidote to the drugs. And cool fact, if you live in Ontario, you can go to Ontario.ca and find out where you can get free naloxone kits. So if you run shows or events or you know, work uh, at a store uh, or any place where people gather, you can get one of these kits. They'll train you how to use it, uh, and it's all for free. Yeah, I've heard that it's also good to take if you're just on the Toronto subway system. (laughs) Apparently, it comes up pretty often on there. Not to make light of it. Yeah, it does. No, but like in malls everywhere, right? So it's it's good that it's accessible to people. So someone comes, it's one of the goons gives them the naloxone? Yeah, seems like it. And to be honest, um, the fact that they used um, an opioid for this, uh, especially given we were just talking about the crisis, which is causing um, a bunch of fatalities in a really horrible way in real life, this does seem to create like a really plausible way for him to die in a way that looks um, accidental, though self-inflicted. But um, it being something that I knew was reversible and with naloxone is... um, pretty quickly reversible. I, I got the impression that he must be um, resurrected in some way if they made the decision to use that drug. Now, Philip Price is with Sam Esmail and the goons. And so this goes back to what you were saying about we imagine a big role for Price in this season and his, you know, kind of Mr. Burns evil game is, uh, is really being stepped up. Yeah, I, I'm really, really excited to see what he's going to do this season because it seems to me like they've found a common enemy in White Rose. And um, the death of Angela is something that is affecting them both, even though Price is obviously much more disconnected and sort of an outright deadbeat to her. But um, that that's something that both of them can take to um, have more reason to hate White Rose. So I think we have 
a lot of unanswered questions at this point. Um, but it's so great to pick back up with all these characters and these stories and to see where we're going next. At least there's only one week to wait before the next episode instead of several months. Thank goodness. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for uh, being here with us as we dive into season four. This will also be the final season of our podcast. So we are trying to bring you a full season full of great content and also some great uh, opportunities for engagement. And so we are actually giving away uh, in honor of our, our fallen hero, Angela Moss and Angela Moss Funko. So if you want a chance to win it, tweet at us the secret name that Elliot had for her when they ran away as kids. Psst, it's Claudia Kincaid. So if you know the answer to that question, you can tweet at us. We'll enter you in a draw. Uh, that draw will close. You got to enter by October 16th, 2019. Uh, so we'll leave you with just one thing. Uh, if you were interested in efforts to address substance abuse in a holistic uh, and healthy way for drug users, we would encourage you to listen to the podcast Crackdown. This is a Canadian podcast. It's made by people with lived experience. It's really great. Check it out and consider supporting their work. Anyway, we thank you so much. We've recorded this episode today in three different cities across Ontario. I'm Erin. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.